Hey, Mr. John, you hear me? <laughs> I hear you well. Marcus, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Very nice to um, meet you here. Like um, we had a very brief meeting with uh, with Leonardo a few years ago when we came through uh, uh, Toronto, right? No, it was Ottawa. <laughs> it was Ottawa, exactly. Okay. Sorry, it was very Ottawa. Great. Because <laughs> that that was that was a strange gig. It was sort of like a, like if uh, I can't remember what was the venue. Do you remember the name? I, I remember the, can't remember the name, but it was down. On, it's not far from where I live, but it yeah. was. I think you had to go up a, a flight of stairs to get to it. Yeah, if I'm yeah. not mistaken, which would have yeah. meant like lugging all your gear up there, which is no fun. I used to play in that room when it was a different venue, like a different owner. I used to, I played in that room before. It's kind of weird, yeah. But John, what, what, which instrument do you play? I'm a guitar player. There you no, go. I did. I'm I so, had I'm no so, idea. I'm, I was actually a um, professional player. I mean, I spent 10 years as a house guitar player in a local studio, mm -hmm. uh, just, you know, gun for hire. Um, and I was kind of gun for hire as well. And I mean, I'm not a music, I'm not a writer. Uh, so, you know, I was just, there was myself and this drummer and a bass player who owned the studio and we were like a rhythm section for a hire because people could hire us and we'd like learn a repertoire in like one rehearsal and then go and play. And it was, I did that. And then I, I played until 2003. I had a really bad experience. That's just not worth going into, but it was a bad experience with a, with a, with a, a particular band. And, I do, and things were changing here, you know, pay to play, all the stuff you know all too well about. And I just decided I had enough. And I was starting to get into the writing. And the writing kind of ultimately supplanted my playing. And I stopped playing until very recently when I decided I really wanted to start playing again, but not like not necessarily professionally, but just at home. And my wife for my 65th birthday brought me this very, very cool guitar. Um, it's from a company in the States called Electrophonic Innovations. And it's, um, I wish I could show you it, except that it's off for repair right now, long story. And um, it's got two speakers, stereo speakers built into the body, an 18 watt amp, um, analog effects, and a variety of different emulations all built into the body. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, on four rechargeable batteries that last about eight hours, you just pick it up, turn the power button on. I mean, you can Bluetooth it or plug it into an amp too, but I wanted something that, because I'm in a two bedroom condo, I didn't want something where I need to get an amp and, you know, effects and all that stuff. And I'm not as deep into the whole outboard gear thing as you are. I was, but not as much as you. Anyway, so it's great guitar and, and I'm back getting back at it. And it's funny thing, muscle memory, you know, I can't, I mean, my hands are older. I got some arthritis. I can't necessarily be as dexterous as I used to be, but I was amazed when I first picked it up at how much my hands remembered where to go. Isn't that an amazing thing? It is amazing. I mean, like, you know, I, I started playing the fifth tuning when I was 18, <laughs> right? And I had only played the fourth tuning for three years prior to that. Yeah. Three years. Yeah. Like, but you can give me an instrument tuning fourth any day and I can play it. It's, yeah. it's, it's unbelievable. It's, it is. <laughs> it's yeah, kind of, it, it, it really speaks for the fourth tuning, dude. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, I've you know, I mean, there there was a time when I considered trying you know Robert's new new standard tuning, but uh, it just looked a bit too frightening for me. I'm I'm now in the midst of reading uh, Anthony Garone's Failure to Fracture mm-hmm. um, because I did try. I mean, I was in a band in the seventies. We were on the road for a few years, and we played largely progressive rock stuff, and we did some crimson stuff. Um, and I did, I must say, I did give Fracture like an attempt, but I never came even anywhere near being able to do it. Mm-hmm. And, um, I am in, you know, like total awe of, of Anthony for having done it and for documenting the story. Have you seen the book? Yeah, I have a copy. Yeah. yeah. I figured yeah. you would. Yeah. 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 I'm going to review it for the, uh, for, for all the jazz. And I'll include it in my in my Crimson book when that comes out. So nice, nice, yeah, yeah. You see, the um, being a musician, or well, like I don't think you can ever stop being a musician, even if you if you only listen or only write or whatever. You know, like um, I think it 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 is a completely different perspective if you actually know some of the background of what you're writing about, right? I, I agree. I mean, one of the things that when I was uh, managing editor for all which as and, you know, editing a pile of stuff and managing other editors, one of the things that I noticed was, you know, like you can tell the writers who have even like, you don't have to be professional. I mean, you just have to have some conversational engagement with or playing music in some way um, mm-hmm. to have certain understandings. And um, you can always tell the guys who didn't. You know, um, and it doesn't mean that you can't write if you're not a musician, but it does. It is a different thing. I mean, you know, I spent a lot of time in the studio, so even though it's been quite some time, I, I understand a lot of the basics about what happens when you're in a studio um, and, and how you make a record. So, you know, I think it, it certainly helps. Um, you know, I for me anyway, it's certainly been very helpful to understand the process of making music when I'm trying to write and in, in tell people what this music is in words, which is always a hard thing to do anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that uh, it is quite easy to uh, be blinded by the fascination with the subject sometimes, right? And and I, I find that happens occasionally uh, in, in the sciences, like where there's research where you can tell that the people are researching something that they have no idea about and and that's 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 kind of the motivation and that's a good thing you know it's yep. a good thing in a way but then for some some things you would only have to ask an expert and you would get an answer you know and you wouldn't really have to do the, <laughs> the research I, I you know i've come across some 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 studies like that and some books like that where i really had to put them aside you know, and one of them is actually a pretty, pretty famous book uh, that I just couldn't read because like the tone, it, well, to me, it was very clear that the writer had really had no idea what he was writing about. Like it was music. It was, it was like a psychological side of music. Oh, okay. But 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 really, like, I, I think I can guess who it might be. But anyway. yes, yes, yeah, you you know exactly who it is. Yeah. And 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 I was, you know, I just, I mean, I didn't, I, I just couldn't read it. You know, it was just difficult for me. Well, you know, because you know, I mean, you know, you, I mean, you know, the thing is, you 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 know, and so you know, you can tell, um, 
you know, for me, when I, what, I mean, before I was even, before I was writing, you know, I mean, when I looked at people who wrote about music, you know, I mean, what I was looking for was, was honesty and, and understanding um, of, of what was going on so that they could articulate to me as best as possible what it was. And then I could decide whether I was interested or not. And if they can't do that, um, I don't know if they really have any business writing about it. You know, I mean, you have to have some understanding of, of, of what this stuff is. And, you know, when we did the thing with Leonardo a few weeks ago, one of the great points you made, you know, is, is Leonardo says, you know, I'm not a musician, but if you look at his life, you know, and, and what he does, he is, yeah. you know, he just doesn't have his hands on an instrument, you know? So, I mean, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you know, that's, that's really how I see everybody who's sort of involved in the, uh, in the birthing of music, right? And that, and with birthing of music, I don't even mean the production process. Hmm. I mean, everything, also everything that comes after that, the yeah. people who, who help promote it, the people who, uh, who have a voice, right? Like who yeah. kind of like build opinions and stuff. And I think it's, uh, those people are also ideally, let's say, musicians right yeah 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 and hey so so um um when you stop playing the the instrument um or stop playing more or less um in in professional context yeah. um did the writing only start then or the, the writing must have been with you for longer than that right not much and it started i i started writing this is good. This, this is a, a good story. I started writing around 2000 or so. I had been working, I was basically a high tech geek by day and a musician by night. I mean, I was literally, you know, I mean, this was back in the days when you could get six night a week club gigs. So, you know, I'd work 12 hours at a, wherever I was working in the day doing high tech stuff. And at night I'd go play sometimes two or three weeks in a month for six nights, which mm -hmm. I was younger <laughs> and uh, could do it. But anyway, um, I, I got out of high tech cause I, I really had had enough. I just, I just couldn't take, it was too high pressure and, and too minimal reward, not financially, but you know, emotionally and intellectually, it just stopped being rewarding. So I didn't know what the heck to do. And I have a, this drummer friend of mine, uh who also writes his name is bruce Whitted. he's a great drummer and he said you know you have a mind like a steel trap with music you remember everything and i and you said you should write about it so i thought okay great i'm going to write a book about ecm records which i was a big fan of so mm -hmm. you know i knew about networking so i started um reaching out to musicians and and doing interviews and i actually ended up doing about 15 or 16 interviews and you know i i talked to bill frizzell and i'd ask bill you know can you put me in touch with paul motion you know so it would work like that but that was where it stopped because i i called paul motion's number this would be around 2001 i think and i left a message saying you know i'm so and so i'm looking to write a book on ecm i'd love to do an interview can we talk and about a day later i get a phone call and it's this woman who says Hi there, my name is Tina Pelican, and I'm a publicist for ECM in New York. And I'm just wondering, what are you doing calling my musicians? Mm -hmm. So she was, I, we became very good friends, but she was, you know, a little crusty. 
And I said, well, I'm writing a book on ECM. And she said, oh, that's great. She said, who's the publisher? And I said, well, um, uh, I, I don't have one. And then she started asking me a series of other questions, which pretty much nailed the fact that I had no idea what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Other than maybe I was doing good interviews, but, you know, so she said, you know, really what you should do is you should, you should, you know, do some writing and get some cred before you start focusing on something as big as a book. Um, and so, you know, we became good. I mean, she was great. She started sending me all these CM releases and I was reviewing them for a bunch of smaller sites until one day I all watch jazz found me. And I got a, an email saying, you know, we see you writing for this site, this site, and that site. Why aren't you writing for us on that site? Um, and I just immediately, because I was a high tech guy, I just said, that's a really good question. And because like no website for, for jazz, at least at the time, and I would hazard a guess to say almost for music in general now is as um, exceptional as a piece of high tech architecture than as all about jazz. I mean, Michael Ritchie, the founder and publisher is, um, to me, a hidden visionary in terms of helping musicians, uh, getting the word out about music, you know, all this stuff. And he's, he's a triple threat. I mean, he plays trumpet. So, I mean, he's not a pro, but he plays an instrument. So he understands the process. He is a, but he's a total jazz lover, other stuff too. And he's a high tech, total guru when it comes to that stuff mm-hmm. and so that was the beginning i mean I, was, I started writing for them and within three months i was exclusively writing for them within six months i wanted to work in the back end and you know it just sort of went from there and that was in 2004 but you know it started around 2000 2001 i started writing about stuff and um i got good feedback um but i never anticipated um you know that it would sort of lead to what it has led to now, you know, that somebody like you would want to actually talk to me about it. Um, mm-hmm. I just, you know, I just figured it was like, I'm just doing it. But what I will say as, as for, for those out there who might be thinking about writing about music, um, you can say what you want about Stephen King, but he had something of that I took to heart as an approach to learning how to write. And that was write eight hours a day, every day and that's what i did um so when i first started writing for all about jazz i mean i was a writing machine and i mean you know it didn't in any way compromise what i was doing i had this routine of cycling music in and out of my consciousness as i was going through stuff so that by the time i came to write about it i i knew it well um i'm not a believer in like listening to an album once and then writing a review i think that's Mm -hmm. a you know, some people think that's great first impressions and everything, but I think that you miss stuff and you don't get deep into it on the first listen. Anyway, so you know that was a that was a, 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 a you know so so Stephen King was my was my mentor when it came to the craft of writing, and by the time I got to all about jazz, I was you know I was already writing reasonably well. Though when I look back now, I kind of cringe. Uh, as I have been with this Crimson book I'm doing. And um, I, uh, but but all about jazz, you know, I mean, because it's got such a huge readership. I mean, when I joined, it's it was getting about 350,000 unique visitors a month. 
you know. And I remember being at the Montreal Jazz Festival in 2009 with Michael, and we were meeting with the high tech guy from Montreal Jazz Festival, and we were at lunch, and uh, the guy was asking like, "What's traffic like right now?" And Michael went and looked, and it just so happened on that one day, and it's been the only day we had a million unique visitors in one day. That's amazing. Which is amazing. So amazing. they, you know, all about jazz has proven to be a great vehicle for me to get my name out there, and because I was writing so much you know, in very short period of time, people are going, who's John Kelman and where the hell did he come from? And all this stuff, you know, and, um, you know, writers in Ottawa who write for Downbeat, you know, would call they called me up and going, who the hell are you, you know? And I'm not, I mean, these were guys who, you know, were way better writers than I was and, and am still probably, I'd say, but, you know, it, it gave me a place to really hone my chops and um, get exposed to way more music than I'd ever thought possible. So it worked out well. And so, yeah, uh, by the time I joined All About Jazz, I was just writing so much. I mean, I was still playing until 2003, but it just, you know, it started to become a challenge to balance the two uh, and, be, and, do, and do it well. You know, I mean, you know yourself, you know, I mean, if you're going to play, you want to do it you want to do it well and you you know if you're competing many hours of your day with other things sometimes that can be a challenge so i think it was a mistake for me to put guitar down completely um in retrospect um but i'm glad to have picked it up again now because i'm really having fun so yeah. yeah man that's uh I find that interesting because that's sort of like almost like a second career and you said that was like about 20 years ago right so um yeah um you have you had already had a a life a long life before that where you were able to to accomplish things right and uh, and, and they, all, uh, they all contributed to this i mean you know i mm -hmm. i i sometimes wish that i've been writing longer because i have friends who were lifers, you know, a friend of mine in Cleveland, Carla Wolf, great writer, and he's been doing this his whole life. And I, I sometimes wish I had had that, you know, but on the other hand, I feel like everything I did before it kind of led to this. And, and here it is, you know, for whatever it is, um, you know. Um, exactly. I mean, for, for me, I mean, I, it was like age when I was 42, felt like a completely new era is going to start, you know, and and it was true. It was true. Somehow. Yeah. 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 And, um, yeah. So, um, John, tell us a little bit about like your initial, uh, if, if you, if you feel like it, if it's okay, tell us a little bit about your, your childhood and your teens, let's say, and how you got to, uh, love music and, um, like first experience playing a musical instrument and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, <laughs> Well, I mean, I was always a fan of music when I was a kid. My, my parents, um, my dad was a jazz fan. My mother was a Broadway musical fan. I'm not a big fan of Broadway musicals, to be honest. But I did get to know, you know, a lot of songs that were in the Great American Songbook through that. And then through my dad, you know, we'd go to see shows. But what happened was when I was about 10 years old, uh, and, and I'm going to say this with, you know, a certain amount of embarrassment, but my favorite band when I was 10 was a band called the New Christie Minstrels. They were really a, they were like a, 
there are they uh it's hard to describe but let's say one of the guys in the band was a guy in the group was a guy named barry mcguire about a huge hit in the 60s called the eve of destruction um but anyway i was a big fan of those guys and they had this hawaiian guy who played banjo and i loved the banjo and i really wanted to play the banjo so my grandfather um on my 10th birthday said we'll go and we'll buy you a banjo and he took me to this store named metro music in ottawa which is still there and the banjos were 95 dollars, and guitars were 15. so i got a guitar and um but the great thing is is the guy who runs the place uh or ran the place now it's his daughter because he passed away sadly about must be 20 years now a guy named bob sabaran a guy who should have been a well-known guitar player i mean he was a monster i mean uh especially in the jazz world we ended up playing together in in wedding bands later but you know he was an amazing teacher total no bullshit um if you didn't do your homework you entered the room in fear because he was not going to tolerate it but he was a tremendous teacher and his, his his teaching was based on three things one of them was berkeley modern method for guitar okay so that was the thing we were doing uh before that mel bay um and then uh the second thing was to check out an album and it was not necessarily jazz or it could be you know i mean he introduced me to miles davis and west montgomery uh but he also introduced me to johnny winter he sold some albums uh in his store not not a big section but he had some records there and um so he was he was a great teacher and i i um and the third thing was at this time so like i mean we're talking 1966 was when i was 10 um back in the stone age and um there was a club here called lippy boo the owl and it was a an unlicensed coffee house back in those days coffee houses were a big thing and they had um like they booked acts like from everybody who was on the road i mean like i'm talking about uh anything from like lenny bro the great Canadian expat jazz guitar player. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He was, he died youngish and he never got to be as big as he should have been, but you should check him out. Live at Bourbon Street with Dave Young, this double bassist. Uh, he did things with harmonics. He, he played, he played a seven string guitar finger style. And I mean, he was as familiar with like flamenco playing as he was with like you know linear jazz line playing and stuff like that he was tremendous anyway and he did this incredible thing with harmonics that many guitar players have since uh copied they don't always know it came from him but anyway so guys like lenny bro played there but also like you know in the blues sunny terry and brownie mcgee played there um i saw weatherford played there in 1972 75 seat coffee house you know um dreams the band that originally had the brecker brothers um it was after cobham and john abercrombie had left but you know still an amazing band will lee was on bass i mean you know it was a great band and um i saw miroslav vitas uh vitas with uh larry coriel and a drummer who's since gone by the wayside in my brain and you know so 
I was constantly being exposed to stuff. And at the beginning, you know, my dad had to take me to shows. But by the time I was about 13, I could just go myself. And so all the way from 10 through 16, I was doing these three things. They're all part of my education. And I really credit Bob for having given me um, the gift of like big ears and not being um, biased against, you know, against music, um, you know, being open. Uh, he was he was really instrumental in that. Um, and I took lessons from him until I was 16. And by that time, I'd started playing in bands. Um, and the first band I was in, we didn't have a singer, but we had a, a piano player who played Rhodes. We had a bass player, my friend, the drummer, Bruce. And we had a guitar player who also played violin. So, hey, Mahabishnu Orchestra, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> 15 year olds doing meeting of the spirits. It was, uh, you know, I mean, I have no recordings of it and probably that's just as well, but it was ambitious stuff for that age. And also, you know, I was started doing, we were playing Allman brothers, like instrumental stuff and anyway, stuff like that. And that was the beginning of my really getting interested in, in like, you know, playing in bands. I discovered two things. One, that it was much more fun playing with other people. And two, it was much more fun playing with other people in front of other people. Um, the value of an audience. Um, did, did you have a guitar lessons? Yeah, with Bob, absolutely, yeah, all that time. Yeah, yeah this, and all that time. Okay. okay. Yeah, from 10 through 16, I did the, I ultimately did the, the, the Berkeley Modern Method for guitar. Oh, um, amazing amazing really that's uh, so yeah he was and, and, but it was all him he was great i mean he was yeah wow he was so encouraging you know and when i started playing in bands he'd come out and see me and he would like you know he was he was great and and i can't i cannot overstate how important he was in my life um so yeah so i started playing in bands and one sort of thing led to another I ended up in a band called Glass that was largely progressive. We were doing Gentle Giant. We had two two female singers, a guy who played trumpet, a keyboard player, a bass player, myself, and a drummer. And we did all kinds of weird stuff. Uh, we did some Zappa. We used to do Peaches on Regalia, things like that. And that led to my being asked to join a band called Larkspur, which was a pretty big band in the city at the time. And in fact, the guitar player in that band was the guy who I played with and played violin just a few years prior, Ed Stevens. And he was getting tired of playing in with them. So basically uh, we swapped places. He joined Glass and I joined Larkspur. And Larkspur, I played in, on the road for two years, probably 40 to 45 weeks a year we were on the road. and. You know, I mean, it was really like at the bottom of the rung. We were playing uh, good clubs, but, you know, staying in very, very suspect accommodations. And, um, you know, the travel was grueling. You know, I mean, we, we, we didn't even travel in a van. We traveled in a car. But we did, you know, it, it's a long story, but the, the, it was a good band to play in. Um, mm-hmm. The musicianship was, was high, um, but... The uh, personalities were com- were difficult in some cases, but it was fun and it was good while it lasted. And then I left, um, and at that point, I was 
pretty season mm-hmm. um, in terms of, you know, gigging. But I had, had very little experience in the studio. We had one, one day in the studio at Thunder Sound in Toronto with Terry Brown, the guy who produces Rush. Mm-hmm. And it was like a scene out of uh, Spinal Tap. Um, like everybody, arguments, uh, you know, like, like, you know, just abounding. And I was just amazed that Terry Brown could maintain his cool through the whole thing. I mean, we got, we walked away with nothing after that day. We had nothing to show for it other than, you know, a bill. Um, but it was still, you know, but it was still my one experience, you know, and then I did it, you know, so that was sort of what led me up to my early twenties. Um, at which point after Larkspur, I said, there's no way in hell I'm going to go back on the road. Um, I didn't realize you could maybe do it differently. And um, so I, I, I worked in a record store, went back to school, got into high tech. And after a couple of years of not playing, because I just had been fed up with the whole scene, I started getting into playing again. And um, initially through wedding bands, oddly enough, um, but with people who are really good players. And so, you know, like the leaders of the bands were usually not great players or great anything, but they knew enough to hire good people to play for them. And so we had a lot of fun. I mean, it was, you know, doing stuff I'd rather not play, but it was fun. Mm -hmm. You know, we did some fun. It was fun anyway. And, you know, most of the time there was occasionally an electric piano, but usually it was just me. So I was responsible for carrying a lot of load, you know, because I had to carry, you know, chordal stuff and solo and sometimes both at the same time. And you know what I mean? You know exactly. What I, mean. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. So, you know, so it was a good experience mm-hmm. um, to do it. And that led to my playing um, with a local singer songwriter who's actually better known everywhere in Canada except here. Well, it's not totally true. Anyway, name's Ian Tamlin. He is a tremendous and quintessentially Canadian singer-songwriter who also happened to do a couple of instrumental albums, one funded by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, CBC. And all this stuff was what led to my ending up starting to do studio work. Um, I recorded my first album, with Ian called Dance Me Outside, which was his Bob Dylan at Newport. He was an acoustic guitar player, and this was like a way out electric band. And his fan base absolutely hated it. So I think he still has probably like two thirds of the copies of vinyl that he pressed at the time in his basement. Mm-hmm. But it was, but you know what? It wasn't a bad record. In retrospect, going back. You know, there were some there were some things that make me cringe, but there were some okay things on it that made me go, you know what, that was all right. And I learned a lot about getting a sound in the studio through that mm-hmm. album. You know, mm-hmm. and that that became that was the big thing. I mean, I I mean, you're, um, I suspect that getting a sound in the studio is not really a deal for you because you know you're running it's it's more your instrument and your outboard gear that creates your sound, not an amplifier. Is that correct? Well, to say? well, you know, you know, when I'm in a studio, then I, then I actually do want to use the studio as a tool and yeah. I, I, I'm, I will want to sound, uh, find sound in the studio. So, 
uh, it's like the, the, the gear that I'm taking on stage is sort of just the attempt to, to take some part of the studio on stage. Okay. That's, that's, that's how I see it. So okay. like, okay. you know, when that's, I'm at home, I hardly, well, hardly ever use like the, 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 the full pedal board. I use individual pedals and I, you know, so. Yeah. Okay. No, I just, I, my, my, I, for, for me, it was like, uh, yes, that's the thing. So like learning how to, you know, cause, cause the, and the other thing I learned is that, um, through an album I did with the in town one interesting, this is a good story. We did an album called over my head, which was an album that blended instrumental music with, um, indigenous birds from this area that he had to record. And it was commissioned by CBC and it was originally a performance thing. We went to a museum of natural history and we did two nights there. Um, and it was kind of cool because what we did would be played in the center of the room it was a circular room played in the center of the room and we had the speakers all facing out of people. So it was a surround sound experience. And this was like 1986. So anyway, we decided to go in the studio and, and because it was successful enough to think we could maybe make a record and sell some. And we went in and we thought we'll put it down in a day. And we went in and recorded it and it just sucked. It was terrible. And we realized that, you know, it doesn't always translate. You can, you can but what's live sometimes doesn't work when you start doing it in a, in a studio. Yeah. Um, so we had to kind of reconstruct it. And we ended up with an album that was, you know, it's still pretty good. But the thing that's funny is it ended up getting picked up by Sony in Canada. And I mean, at the time we got two things. One about this is about Ian. We didn't get paid. We all agreed that we wouldn't get paid because there was no money. So we did the album for free. And then one day, literally about 10 years later, uh, I'm, I'm living downtown in another place and he uh, might knock on my door and it's Ian. He said, we've broken even and he handed me a check and he paid me. I don't know many guys who do that mm -hmm. that long later, but the other mm -hmm. thing is the album sold has sold over a hundred thousand copies, but nobody knows because when Sony took it, they wanted the cover read and the CD book that redone mm -hmm. and they list all the birds, but they don't list any of the musicians. <laughs> ah, so I'm on I'm on a, a record that's I guess a gold record here and nobody knows but that's okay and then I did another with him called Magnetic North that sold about I don't know at this point I think around 45,000 and it was a in many ways in some ways it was better in other ways it was it was a it was an evolution from the first one but this time he had been up to the Arctic and, and recorded things like glaciers breaking and you know, whales and all kinds of things like this. And there were some magical moments, like when we did this, the title track where we're playing along with like this loop of a log drum mm -hmm. and all this, and, and we're supposed to be transposing into this second section mm -hmm. that modulates and the whale sound comes in and we're playing and we got this stuff coming behind us. And right when we modulate the whale the, the, modulated exactly the same way. So there was, there were magic moments. Anyway, there, those were some mm -hmm. fun things. And mm -hmm. actually, Magnetic North was recently released on vinyl. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, but anyway, so, you know, uh, I'm, I'm babbling on, but, you know, the bottom line is I got, uh, you know, and as a result of all that stuff with Ian, you know, I got to know this guy named Phil Bova who had this local studio and he started hiring me for doing everything from, 
you know, gun for hire for a singer songwriter to, you know, you're in a grocery store and there's a little TV that shows you how to peel peaches and there's this little acoustic guitar behind it, you know? So this was when you were like your early thirties or something, probably. Yeah, then. that would be, that would be definitely, I'd be sort of 30 to 40 roughly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I mean, and, and, and I was, I was playing a lot because not only was I still playing with Ian, but I started playing with other people. Mm -hmm. And then this all kind of led to, I, I, I played with, you know, some other singer songwriters who become known a woman named Lynn Miles who records for Rounder. Uh, I was on her first, I think first album, Chocolates Went Up to the Moon. Um, and um, then in the mid nineties, there was this local guy named Jerry Griffin who had an interesting story that uh, he had landed himself in prison in Spanish Morocco. Um, he claims to this day that it, the other guy it was the other guy's stuff, but you know, he got caught in a van filled with some hashish and he got put in prison and, you know, people who write songs, you know, they have to have something to write about and, you know, spending about a year in Spanish Morocco prisons before Amnesty got him international got him out gave him a lot to work with and he had this one great album in him and he put together this band which was myself my friend Bruce again on drums a local bass player who also played stick named uh, Tom McMahon um, really good player a blind female accordionist um, who had great ideas, but not great time, but we worked with it. And then there was Jerry, who was like an acoustic guitar player, tremendous harmonica player. And it was kind of roots, American roots music. I mean, his voice is sort of gravelly like John Hyatt. And when it came to doing an album, we, we, were, to, we were playing his music and developing it for a good year until he decided he wanted to record it. And he brought, he managed to get the money together to bring up a guy named Jeffrey Lesser from New York. He was, I guess you'd call him an A-list engineer and B-list producer, although he, in the 60s, he produced the Barbara Streisand album. But mm -hmm. in the 70s, like he engineered guys like Lou Reed. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he was in the scene. Mm -hmm. And the one week we spent recording that album, which was largely in a live off the floor, except for our accordionist, who had to spend about three days trying to overdub because just her time was not great. But the rest of it was recorded largely live off the floor. And he taught me the secret of getting a great sound out of my amp, mm -hmm. um, which had to do with two mics, um, putting them uh, properly uh, in, in phase with each other and how to do that. So mm -hmm. from that point on, like I, I was militant about any time I was being recorded that it was being done that way. Cause I mean, my sound went from being like, like this, you know, from being small to suddenly being huge. I'm just playing a lot of slide mm -hmm. with a lot of distortion. So it was really kind of low end, big sound, right cooter kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it, it was, great because suddenly it was like wow this actually sounds as good as my head hears it and um unfortunately i mean the album generated some interest from record labels in canada until they saw jerry who you know is about 10 years older than me 
so you know this was 95 so okay it was 25 years ago he looked like an old dude and this is in the height of the video boom you know with mtv and up canada much music and they just said you know we love the music but we can't do anything with you mm-hmm. so unfortunately the album did not do what it might have i mean it was a good i mean it was a good record when i listen back to all the stuff i did um as far as consistently being good and never make me want to puke it's a good record um so you know that was that was our big line in the studio it didn't make me want to puke and you know if i could listen to it that's good and so john like these uh uh band and album projects you were mostly playing electric guitar that's what it sounds like to me right acoustic. no i also played acoustic mm-hmm. um I, for a long time, I had like just a, a regular acoustic that I a- amplified. I put a pickup in it and stuff. But then I, because I was playing a lot of stuff live with acoustic, um, at one point, actually, I was playing acoustic guitar, electric guitar. I had it, uh, I was using rolling guitar synths. So I was, you know, sending it out to create other sounds. Like with Lynn, I used, you know, top four strings sound like a guitar, bottom four strings sound like a cello. So, you know, I was doing that kind of stuff. But uh, acoustic guitar, I ended up buying like a, a Guild Songbird, which was like a, a, a thin line um, acoustic guitar that was easily electrified and didn't feed back all over the place. So, yeah, I, I actually played quite a bit. And when I played with Ian, I used to actually do like a little couple of solo segments where I played. Um, I was, I'm big into traditional British stuff like Richard Thompson does. And I used to do a couple of the solo pieces he did, um, Banished Misfortune from Strict Tempo and Dargai from um, Pour Down Like Silver. So, no, I was, I was, I mean, on, in fact, on, on the two albums I did with Ian, I probably played about 60% electric and 40% acoustic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I'm, um, you know, and I also played a bit of mandolin. So, I just... Yeah, mandolin is mandolin is the first stringed instrument I learned. No kidding. Yep. Wow. Yeah. My as big problem eight, was sorry, go ahead. No, as an eight year old, it really was like the first the first, you know, stringed instrument I learned. And uh it's funny because the, as you know, then I got into using the, the new standard tuning uh yeah. when I was eighteen and yeah. Um you know, like just just um you know, like like trying to get a feel for your history or your story here. I I have to say, like I'm even more impressed now with your reviews, like you know, like with your current work. Mm-hmm. Uh, the now that I know what your background is, I have to say it's, it's pretty pretty amazing because like like <laughs> you really do know what you're writing about, right? You you do know what you're writing about. Um, thank you for that. My, my, my <laughs> usual line, though, is like I've had a lot of very, very uh, serendipitous, right place, right time moments in my life. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. where, so, so, so a lot of things kind of just, if I look back, there are points in time where certain things happen and I can go right back and say that's where this started. And mm-hmm. so I've had, a, I've had my fair share of those. So I consider myself a very, very lucky guy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess like in parallel, uh, you know, to being a, a musician, a working musician, you were always a music lover and music listener. Yeah. 
and went and and my and my taste always went far beyond the stuff I play. Uh, I mean, that was mm-hmm. the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have been a, a an unfillable sponge for music um, of of most persuasions. I mean, and in fact, the interesting thing is, you know, going in even you know, I'm going into the classical world. You know, but my taste in classical world are typically smaller ensemble things. I mean, I love music from across, you know, the, the centuries um, with a particular penchant for Baroque era stuff, but I tended towards small ensemble and I tended away from vocal stuff. And the funny thing is my wife, Rio, about 10 years ago, and when we got together, which is 30 years ago, she didn't buy a sing. She used to love like, uh, she was a big Dylan, like singer songwriter, Dylan Leonard Cohen, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, but she never bought records. I mean, I was always the one who bought her the new Dylan record, you know, or the new Leonard Cohen record. But suddenly about 10 years ago, I was on the road uh, traveling as a writer in Europe. And I started noticing that she was buying like stuff at Amazon, like music. And not just a little bit, but a lot. And it was all Baroque era countertenor stuff. And after seeing this happen for some period of time, I just finally, I just sent her an email and I said, now you get it. And she sent me an email back and said, yes, yes, I do. And the cool thing is, is that she has introduced me to that stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only thing that we don't see eye to eye on is opera, not because I don't like some of the music in the operas, but I don't like the, I'm not, a, I don't like, huge i don't like really big yeah. and mm-hmm. and and i i the recit- recitatives i can do without you know if i hear a recital of music from an opera and it's all the arias i'm great but i'm not a big recitative fan so that's where we haven't crossed but she's introduced me so it's been really great because i've you know she keeps telling me you know over the years how much i've been introduced to her to music that she never would have heard and now i can say the same thing in return um because i'm now getting to really know this stuff um so my tastes were always big um you know i mean the big problem is like you know i mean i'm now 65 and the big thing that is troubling me is um so much music and you know i'm hoping to be around for a good few many more years but you know i'm definitely in the third act um Mm -hmm. of my life and it's like so much music so little time because you know i got into like suddenly about three years ago i started getting into like deciding diving really deeply into country music like not the pop country stuff but the real deal yeah and i started buying all these bear family records box sets that great german company who put out amazing issues of like everything from you know like complete merle haggard collections you know to like right back to like the the country music, the big bang in 1927, when uh, I think it was RCA went to Bristol and just, they brought a recorder and they just recorded a pile of people. And who did, some of the people they found were like the Carter family, Hank Williams, you know, like names that have become iconic in the country field. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I've become really interested in that. And the problem with me is like, my wife is the same. If we like something, we never do it halfway. We always go a long way. So, I mean, um, I 
there's just so much music and I keep finding more that I haven't heard. And it makes me crazy because I just think, you know, I'll never get to hear it all, you know, mm -hmm. and I wish I could. Yeah. You know, there, there seems to be like a little bit of a potential conflict for you here because you said like, you really don't believe in just listening to music once. Right. So you want to really get to know it. You want to kind of like feel it rather than just hear it. Right. Yeah and uh, and being interested in listening to a lot of music so that means you have a pretty uh potentially stressful life <laughs> actually no, no, you know, I, know I know i know i know you're joking but no yeah. it's actually it's great but no but the truth is though but it is a challenge because you know if i'm like if i'm reviewing one of these massive king crimson box sets mm -hmm. you know i mean I don't listen to it once. I mean, I, the only box set of Cream Crimson that I have not listened to eight to 10 times is the Heaven and Earth box. And that's only because they got every bloody project gig that they ever did. And I mean, like, it's, mm -hmm. I don't know how many hours it's like, it's, but it's humongous, mm -hmm. like 60 or 70 hours. And mm -hmm. I got the box only about two weeks before street. But normally I listen to these box sets that long. I'm going to be doing a caravan box just after I hopefully finish the Crimson book. And it's like 35 CDs, you know, and I will listen to everything at least five times, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. but the mm -hmm. thing is, is that I carve my day out. See what the thing is, I don't know about you, but I see, I can't, I, most people I know can't do what I do, which is listen to music all the time. Mm -hmm. I go to sleep with in earbuds because my wife can't go to sleep with noise and I can't go to sleep in silence. Mm -hmm. So I go to sleep listening to music. And I mean, I'm not listening to like ambient music or soft stuff. I can listen to like Peter Bratzman, you know, mm -hmm. when I'm going to sleep. So mm -hmm. I put music on and it actually runs all night long on a little dab that I have beside the bed. So if I wake up in the middle of the night and I have to go to the bathroom, I get up, I go back to bed and five minutes I'm aware. And then the rest of the time it's playing. And I you know maybe there's something to this idea of subconscious, but during the day, I mean, I listen to music from the minute I get up mm -hmm. to them till after we start, like, like when Rio and I get together for dinner, we alternate nights. One night it's my choice what to listen to the next night it's hers. And then when we have dinner, that's when the music stops. So I've been listening to music for probably close to 12 hours already, not including overnight. Mm -hmm. So when I'm reviewing stuff, I carve out a certain amount of time in the day where that's what I listen to. And then I have a part of the day, which is what I call my discretionary listening time where I can listen to anything I want. So I've organized it. I don't know. It just, it just seems to work naturally. You know, I think there's a lot to be said about the fact of uh, subconsciously um, digesting and and even like as you say like listening i think that that this this idea of active listening uh even though i i do think i understand what people mean by that right but i think the 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 uh, passive listening is is much more important and in fact like you you know mentioning king crimson i remember that i i really had to listen to those albums in the background like i was 18 or something right and and I had to play them in the background to to appreciate them. I had to listen to them ten times yep. to understand what was going on, and and so I still I still believe that um, that it's a very valid mode of listening 
um, yep. to listen while you do while you do other things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, absolutely. I'm completely because your brain. I mean, you know, like your your brain is catching it. I mean, it's if your ears are hearing it, your brain is catching it and it's processing it in some way. I'm yes, not exactly, exactly sure how, but yeah. it is. I'm yes. I'm guaranteed. It, you know. Yeah. So you know, like what goes through my head as a as a musician or as a musician who's published, right? <laughs> is that that? Well, there's no there's nobody else like you. But I was going to say people like you uh, listening to my music, and um, it, it's kind of like it's. But I, I I'm serious. It's kind of like an honor. Like whenever I meet somebody who I know who has a huge record collection and who knows a lot about music and sort of like has like a really wide taste and and um, um, big ears, you know, as you were saying. Um, and then if I then get good feedback from people like that, I feel really good. <laughs> well, that, yeah, listen, you know, for me, it's the other, I mean, of course, it's the other way around. I mean, to me, you know, the, the privilege of um, being able to hear the amount of music I get to hear, you know, I mean, Leonardo, I mean, I could, I could live my life on what Leonardo sends me and just that, you know, I mean, <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, like to, to be able to, and then to be able to meet and engage with, with the people who are making the music like yourself, I mean, that's the privilege. And, 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 you know, so when I started traveling and that was my big, like that was what really kickstarted my writing was like in 2006, I had a, a member, I said, I have, distinct moments my right place right time was at the ottawa jazz festival in june 2006 when nils petter Molver, the trumpet player from norway i'm sure you know him um played there with the band that he had, had for quite some time at that point which was avandar set on guitar who's you know and is monster um uh yan bang doing live sampling uh runa arneson on drums and um um, um, uh, DJ Strange Fruit doing turntables, mm -hmm. uh, Paul uh, Nihos. And um, I went out to dinner with them after because mm -hmm. I, I had met Nils Petter at the sound check. And I was sitting beside Jan Bang, and Jan said, You know, I'm it's the second year of this festival I run called Punk, it's a live remix festival. And he said, like, You know, would you be interested in coming to cover it? And I mean, it's like, Okay, Norway live remix festival yeah yeah I'll, I'll, I'll do it you know <laughs> so eight weeks go by and i hear nothing and then suddenly i get an email from him and it's like i think two or three weeks before the festival and just says so are you coming and you know i've never been out of the country in years so i had my passport had elapsed i had you know i didn't have a suitcase i'm nothing and i just said yes and i that was my first of what would become many trips to norway Mm -hmm. um, which was like at the end of August, 2006. Uh, and at that time I was trying to write daily reports. So like this was a three day festival. Mm -hmm. There would be stuff during the day, but like night it was the real thing. There'd usually be four shows where you'd go see a band in, or, you know, and it could be anything from pop music to improvised music to classical music in one room and they do like an hour long performance. And then you go to their alpha room next door where you'd see a live remix of that show. 
with other musicians engaging with the remixers. And I was literally freaked out. Um, you know, I mean, I got the first night I got three hours sleep because I had to write my report. The second night I didn't get any sleep because they were doing a boat trip during the day on the third day, which they do for guests of the festival, taking us mm -hmm. out to an island and feeding us fish soup and wine and stuff. And so I had to get my report done and then I, it was time to go. So I was, by the time I got home, I mean, I, and the other thing is I also didn't realize like, I really need to arrive the night before the festival starts and get a good night's sleep before I start. I arrived the day of the festival. I left the day it ended. So I got home on what would be Sunday night here at midnight. I'd been awake for 46 hours and I was so absolutely pumped. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't sit still. I was so excited at what I'd seen. I mean, aside from the fact that it was just the concept was great. I mean, it was like, you know, the musicians there, was, uh, Nils Petter, Avon, Jan Bang, uh, Arva Henriksen. I mean, it was all the great guys that I'd been listening. Boogie Veseltov, you know, all these guys were there. And I was seeing them. I was meeting them. It was like, you know, just my mind was just blowing every minute. And I got home and I, you know, I couldn't contain myself i woke my wife up and that's a really bad thing to do uh, rio and i I, mean, I love rio like we've been together 30 years but i've i know that waking rio up is never a good thing but i couldn't help myself i was just too excited and that started an eight-year run of going to punk and covering them every year and um they started saying they didn't have to provide reports to their sponsors because what i wrote about it covered everything they needed to say. They even had me speak to like a couple of dinners of sponsors, like about my, why Punkt was important and why, you know, because Punkt, I don't know if how much you, you know about the festival, I'm sure you know some about it, but you know, I mean, they started taking it on the road, the concept, they like, I, I saw Punkt in Estonia, mm -hmm. where, you know, some of the Norwegian guys, I mean, the two guys co-artistic direct the thing, Jan Bang and Eric Honore were there, and they brought Ave and Arset, and they brought Sitzelendris and the singer, my heart. Um, and, uh, you know, and, but then they engaged with other musicians. And then another time I saw them at Enjoy Jazz in Germany in Mannheim. And they, they engaged at John Hassel there, but they also had Ensemble Modern, you know. Um, so, you know, like when they traveled, they always ensured that they were meeting up with musicians from the area there and, and collaborating with them as well. So Punk was becoming kind of like an international collection of like-minded musicians and other people like me um, who, who just, you know, were sort of advocating for it because I believed in what they were doing. Um, unfortunately, that stopped when the chronic fatigue thing hit, but um, that led to other travels in Norway, though. Then suddenly I started getting invited to other festivals. And the next thing you know, I mean, I'm in Trondheim, I'm in Molde, I'm in, you know, I, I curated a series of Norway. They asked me to curate a series of some of the musicians from Norway I thought were important at the time at Kongsberg in 2012. And I even made it to Svalbard above the Arctic Circle where they have the International Seed Bank and they have a, have a festival in mid-February, a jazz festival, and the sun isn't coming up yet over the horizon. It's like, 
you know, all, all dark, except for about a few hours a day where it's sort of pinky. Uh, mm -hmm. Anyway, I, I, Norway was a huge experience and it, it expanded my ears, it expanded my network, um, and it led to being invited to, uh, you know, events in many other places in Europe and even farther afield, South Africa, Malaysia. And it was, they were probably like, I mean, if I think about the most exciting time of my life, 2006 to 2014 was definitely like, because I was traveling eight to 10 weeks a year, going places I'd never ever have the chance to see otherwise, mm -hmm. seeing musicians, meeting the musicians, and writing about the music, I mean, it doesn't really get much better than that. Um, you know, but then mid-2014 is when I started feeling something was wrong, and that's what kind of led to this chronic fatigue thing. Mm -hmm. And it has changed my life. I mean, you know, because I cannot travel the way I used to. I just, I don't have the energy mm -hmm. to like fly overnight transatlantically get one night's sleep and then work you know because mm -hmm. um, as much fun as this all sounds and it is um it is work of course so yeah. you know that's yeah. that's when everything sort of stopped but those man those eight years they were really good and i don't and i don't i'm not bitter that i don't have them anymore i feel fortunate to have had the experiences and you know maintained the friendships with so many people that i've met over the years there so, you know, I consider myself a lucky guy. Yeah, I, I just said a bad pun in my head. Like it was <laughs> the culmination of uh, your life, right? Yes, well, you know, Leonardo calls me culminator. So, so <laughs> we, can, we can do a lot with that one. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess you're still very friendly with, with everybody that you met in Norway. And it was basically just your, your health that kind of like stopped you from living that life, right? Uh, unfortunately, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not as close to them as I was, of course, but I mean, you know, um, uh, Jan and Eric were invited to bring Punkt to the Montreal Jazz Festival a few years back. So, you know, we had a very nice hang and, you know, and everything. It was unfortunately not, they didn't really, the, the, the festival didn't really set it up the way it should have been. Mm -hmm. um, so it was not as, 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 exciting an experience as I was hoping people in Montreal would have like the first time I did, you know, mm -hmm. but it was still very good. And it was just, it was really good to, to see these guys. Avon was there as well. And, you know, I mean, I, and I do keep in touch with a lot of people there that, that, you know, I, I, you know, not weekly, but you know, we, a few times a year, we, you know, we communicate and it's great. I mean, it's, I can't, it's it's now a part of my life but but you know same says you know i mean germany you know reiner kern the guy who runs enjoy jazz i mean you know he will bring me there and give me four nights hotel before the festival if i want to come and it's a festival i can do because they only do one show a night mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that's manageable for me with this chronic fatigue so I'm kind of hoping once things settle down and maybe we're all vaccinated and we can start moving around again, that at least, you know, I'll get myself back to Heidelberg. Um, that, that festival takes place sort of in Heidelberg, Mannheim, Ludwigshafen region. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, and so I'm hoping I can get back and to at least to do that. 
Hey, would you like to share um, a little more about the chronic chronic fatigue? Because it's it's sort of like a mystery. And um, so you said like you it started for you that you you were not feeling well. So um, what, what happened? I was just you know? more tired than I, I I started feeling. Well, see, this is also a curious thing. My wife has it. Mm -hmm. She got it in 20, 2005, yeah. and usually it starts with an incident of some kind. In Rio, it was a really bad stomach bug, and from mm -hmm. that point on, she had no like. She went through the ener no energy, and um, you know, the good news is you know she got a very good doctor who put her through like you know the million dollar <laughs> workout, you know, workup mm -hmm. of tests and stuff. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't find anything. And, you know, I mean, it's not contagious per se, but it's also not completely unheard of that people who live together, sometimes it happens, passes from one to the other. But, you know, I mean, it was um, nine years uh, after she got it. But I started just, I just started noticing that, you know, after I did, like, you know, I would come back from these trips and I'd be little tired it wouldn't be you know but i started noticing i was more tired than i normally was and that it started getting worse progressively and a little bit quickly you know mm -hmm. so finally i mean like that was the year i had to cancel going to punk which was like the biggest i mean you know you know i'm sick when i don't go to punk was kind of the way it was then mm -hmm. and i was you know, so so I went through this whole thing of multi, you know of many many doctors, you know, blood tests. I, I mean, you know, gastrointestinal tests, you know, brain scans, pituitary, thyroid, all the stuff. You know, mm -hmm. and they really are not sure what it is, unfortunately. But at least it's starting to become. Uh, a little more accepted as an actual condition. And because trust me, you know, I mean, I'm feel, I, I sound and look pretty energetic right now, but I can guarantee you when this is over, I'm going to be flat for a while, you know, not for weeks or anything, but for like, you know, for a day, I'll probably need to kind of rest up. And, but, it, but I wouldn't have had it any other way. Um, but, you know, it's, 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 um, It's a crippling condition because, you know, it's like, you know, people say, well, why don't you, you know, my, you know, people say, well, why don't you just, you know, you exercise a bit or you this or that, you know, and it's like, and I the thing I keep trying to say is, okay, listen, you know, try driving your car with an empty tank of gas, you know, mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. kind of like that. Um, but the other thing is, you know, it's not like you can bank up you can bank up hours of rest and and then have the energy um what i've learned and i mean a lot of it's thanks to my wife but also from my own experience now um having been living with this for six years is that it's um it really is about managing your energy so you know as as you know when when people want to do things uh, with me um i i give them a fairly restricted window you know i kind of sit my my usable hours where i think feel i'm at my best are kind of between noon and six and so you know i can do stuff during that time um 
but you know, and I mean, yeah, I can go to shows and you know, I'll write about them the next day or something. But I mean, it, it's it's but going to a show is a is 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 a, is a physical thing. Doing the thing about chronic fatigue is that everything is tiring. I mean, uh, making the bed is tiring. Taking a shower is tiring. Getting dressed is tiring. You know, um, we have two cats and, you know, we, uh, I do, because I'm a little better in the mornings than real. Um, we have this thing where I do four days of getting up in the morning to feed the cats because they will not allow us to not do that. And um, then she does one. And so we, we sort of do that. And we figured out routine where, you know, we maximize each of our best times to do the things that need to be done just the mundane stuff of life, you know? Um, I mean, that's the part that I, but you know, it's interesting. It's, you know, I, I'm again, this getting older thing. I'm starting to think maybe there's something to this idea of getting a little wiser. I don't know, but it, it seems like, um, you know, I'm starting to, maybe because it's been so difficult to do some of these things at times, uh, I'm starting to appreciate the value and the pleasure of really small things in life. Um, like getting up and playing with my cats and feeding them and, you know, cleaning their bowls and stuff like that. These are, these are things that I used to just consider like jobs that had to be done. Now they're actually things that I have to make sure I've got the juice for. And I, I, I enjoy them. It's a funny thing. Um, and I've learned to appreciate uh, smaller things in a much bigger way uh, since I've gotten this condition. Now, the good news is that not if there, if there is any good news about COVID, is that there is some suggestion that the long haulers, what they are suffering, mm -hmm. is in some way related to mm -hmm. chronic fatigue, and that what that means. Because the biggest problem with chronic fatigue is nobody's wanted to spend the money to really seriously investigate it. Mm -hmm. and, but people will want to spend money to investigate the long haulers and yeah. see if there's a way to deal with that. So the hope is that if they figure out a way to deal with the long hauler people who have had COVID, that might be something that can be transferable to treat for, for um, chronic fatigue. So, mm -hmm. you know, I remain... Uh, in hope of always in hope and uh in the meantime um i try to manage my life in ways that allow me to do what i need to do and that's why you know doing this book last year you know i've largely had to say no to doing reviews mm -hmm. for all about jazz because i know i just can't do both mm -hmm. you know before mm -hmm. i could have done both no problem but not mm -hmm. anymore mm -hmm. yeah. So is, is there any uh, medication that you're on for this? Uh, well, yeah, because the thing about chronic fatigue is, I mean, not only is there the fatigue, but there are these side, um, I would say, no, the, 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 there, are, uh, there are side effects that happen. So, for example, um, I was always a pretty heavy migraine sufferer when I from my teens. I suffered migraines fairly regularly. Uh, now I suffer them far more often and far more severely than they used to be. So I'm on medication that helps mitigate that as, as an example. 
Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, Rio has issues with nausea, you know. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, I'm using medicinal marijuana CBD because that's mm -hmm. a natural anti-inflammatory mm -hmm. and that helps with the headaches. Um, Rio is using the THC because that helps with nausea. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like there's, there, there are different, different people respond di or react differently with chronic fatigue as well. And the, the peripheral, I guess that's a better word, the peripheral, um, things that they suffer, uh, that are amplified by chronic fatigue, you know, that's what you have to really try and treat. Because I mean, if I can be without a headache, you know, and all I've got to worry about is having a certain amount of energy to be able to do a certain amount every day. If I'm careful and I don't overdo it, I can do okay. Now, that said, you know, if I do what I usually do and cover like the Ottawa Jazz Festival back to back with the Montreal Jazz Festival, I can do it. But when it's over, I'm usually flattened for like about two weeks. And when I got my first COVID shot, it put me out for about two weeks. Mm -hmm. Um just you know could not i could barely get out of bed most days you know mm -hmm. um but i feel fortunate that i can manage it and still manage to 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 write you know because that was my big fear what you yeah. know i'm gonna suddenly be unable to to do that um, yeah but uh, thankfully i've been able to you know manage and rio too you know i mean we, we've we've managed to kind of carve our life out in a way that you know, we can both do the things that matter to us most. And, mm -hmm. and I'm grateful for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I was thinking that like, once you kind of like real, you know, start or uh, having the realization that you're suffering uh, from a handicap like that, uh, then there's the whole emotional aspect of also having to deal with the new situation and of say having less time having less energy, having less time and all of that. And, uh, I, I, but I, and, you know, I mean, I, I, I hate saying this because of it, 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 but, but I was lucky because I had somebody who'd already been through it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I got a lot of guidance from her and also, you know, she went through the, the emotional thing in a big way because, you know, neither of us knew what was going on, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, I was fine and she was not. And, and that was uh, hard for me to, to, to watch what was happening to Rio. Um, and, you know, I, um, I was in some ways fortunate that when it happened to me, you know, I already saw like this, how it could be. And so I, I and, and I'll be honest, I've, one of the things I've tried to be and, and I'm, more as I get older is I've tried to be a more positive person in life. When I was younger, I was a big worrier, you know, mm -hmm. I was constantly concerned with what was coming and not with what was here. And uh, one of the things I learned from my traveling was to really appreciate the moments in the present because, you know, you know, a lot of, you know, we all say, okay, fine. You know, we can't see a band. We can get a live recording and a live recording is great, you know, but it doesn't take the place of a live performance, which is a thing that happens in a moment. It's mm -hmm. there. And when it's over, it's gone, you know? 
and to me, so I, so having that kind of helped me become a little more positive about things. And so I didn't go through a huge, you know, woe is me. I can't do what I used to do anymore as a writer. The only drag was that I stopped being managing editor in 2013 because I was spending too much time editing other people's stuff and I wanted to do more writing. And within a year, my writing was curtailed by this. But, you know, listen, I'm, I'm nearly finished the book. Uh, when I finished, I'll go back to doing reviews for all of which as, and hopefully if the book does well enough, there's a number, there's a second book that we have in mind. Um, and, and uh, you know, uh, I now know that I can do it, um, mm. which is good. And I'm, I've got a guy, you know, as a publisher who understands my situation. So has been beyond understanding as far as like, there's no deadline. It's like, mm -hmm. it'll come when it comes, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, Declan probably, or met, I don't know if you've met Declan. I met him, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, he's really good. So anyway, I'm, I'm really fortunate for that, but I've managed to, avoid too much of the negative stuff because it's it's very easy to fall into that you know yeah it really is but i have had too many good things happen in my life and uh it may sound simplistic but i just to me i i kind of look at that and i go you know i've been you know a very fortunate guy more fortunate than many in terms of some of the experiences i've had and so i've I've got to just take what comes and move with it, you know. John, what what is the what is the concept of the King Crimson book? Um, well, it's very simple. I mean, you know, for me, I, I, and the thought of a book all started in about 2014. In fact, when a guy from two into within the space of two weeks, I got contacted by two different agents in the UK who wanted me to re write, and I put this in quotes because that's their words, not mine, the definitive progressive rock history book. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, you know, I, I had actually gotten to the point where I had chosen the agent and the publisher, it was Little Brown Associates, and we were putting forth the, you know, the chapter outlines and all that kind of stuff. And then I got sick. I had to bail. Mm -hmm. um, but I really, you know, I mean, after writing in the online world for so long now, I've just, I've really wanted to just get just one, I'd be happy with one book published. Now I might have two, but I'm just very, I just wanted to get one thing that I could actually hold in my hands, you know? And so what I, when I, I started looking at, you know, I mean, you know, I've got like at the moment, 2,843 articles at all about jazz. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of writing. Um, and when I started collecting just my King Crimson writing, just about just the stuff about the band alone, forget solo projects from past members and present members, mm -hmm. you know, I had a lot of stuff. So I, I approached Declan cause I've been, you know, reviewing, stuff the, the, the crimson boxes and everything else that's been coming out and i said you know what about the idea of like you know a collection of my writing about king crimson from all of the jazz but you know revised updated you know made consistent um hopefully he says improved because you know um as i speak uh, so i write 
which is run on sentences and tangential thoughts. So, you know, my writing, the way I look at my writing is, you know, it's information dense, um, but it's got a lot of good information in it. And it, it, it you know, if, if ever there's something that somebody wants to read to find out about something, I think I'm pretty, I'm a pretty good guy to read. Um, I don't talk much about my feelings about it because I don't think my opinion matters that much. I just think, you know, my writing about what I perceive this music to be is more important. And then you can decide yourself. So anyway, all that said, I um, pitched the idea of just, you know, uh, my older writing has got a lot of, I've made more revisions just because of like, you know, simplifying prose. Same mm-hmm. information, just making it more digestible. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, um, you know, so so that was what I pitched as the original idea. And, you know, we we kind of bantered it about for a while. Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, originally you wanted to make it much bigger. But then when I put together, like, how much writing I'd done, like we were talking about doing, like, you know, all the stuff I'd written about the British progressive slash hard rock stuff. So that would include my writing about the Canterbury scene, Hatfield in the North and all that kind of stuff. It was just like, I mean, it'd be like, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred pages or something. So we, we just, we paired it back to what I think is manageable, which is a book that contains revised and hopefully says improved articles about King Crimson and this includes, you know, CD reviews, box set reviews, live reviews, in some cases interviews, because I did some interviewing when I saw them live. Um, also solo projects from members past and present. So anything I wrote about Bill Bruford is fair game, you know, as is Jacko, Jack Chick. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one degree of separation. So mm-hmm. if Brian Eno played with Robert Fripp, anything I wrote about Brian Eno can also be included. Mm-hmm. So that it, that's a reasonably cogent concept for a book. Uh, and, uh, and, and it comes down to about 135 articles, mm-hmm. ranging in length from five to 600 words to mm-hmm. 15,000. Mm-hmm. So oh, that's, that's a lot. It's a lot. And mm-hmm. I also am planning to, like, I mean, I also... I want to write some connective tissue where necessary to, there won't be a lot of it as it turns out, but a little bit, but also I want to have section intros because I've sort of structured the thing, you know, big chunk on King Crimson and then like artist past and present. I mean, I want to have an intro for each section to kind of provide some biographical context for the artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that will be new. And also I'm planning to write a couple of book exclusive articles. One is I've never covered, like, you know, they put out the tour boxes every year since 2014. I haven't covered one of them. So I'm going to cover all of them in one article. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I'm thinking is, and it depends when it comes out, it might extend to three, but you know, I, in the 1969 box, I talked about the session reels for in the court of the Crimson King in considerable detail. Mm-hmm. Um, so since they've released the session reels for In the Wake of Poseidon and Lizard, which is my all-time favorite King Crimson record, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to write an article about those session reels and depending upon the timing, maybe Islands, because I'm mm-hmm. sure they'll be doing that this year. I just don't know when. If mm-hmm. it's 
towards the end of the year, it'll be too late. Cause I'm hoping, I mean, at the point now I've got 10 articles left to revise. Mm -hmm. So I think I'll be done that in a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm going to do the new stuff. So I'm thinking I'll be done probably by early August at the pace I'm going, I'm having a good run right now. So mm -hmm. um, if I can continue that run, I could be done by early August and, and hand in a first draft. And then, well, we'll see what they do with it. Um, you know, cause I'm sure there'll be things to do after that, but it's, it's um, exciting. Um, you know, and, and I don't know if you know, it, but the, the, if, if this book does well enough and I'm really got my fingers crossed, then the second book will collect my writings about ECM. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the, the carrot for that one as new material will be that I've got those 15 or 16 interviews that I did back in 2000, 2001 for mm -hmm. that book I was going to do. Mm -hmm. And um, other than one that the one I did with Bill Frizzell, which I published at Elbow Jazz in 2011, because it was like, Bill's a great guy. Have you, have you ever met him? No, never met him. He is almost too nice to be on this earth. He's mm -hmm. such a nice I can, guy. I can imagine, yeah. He, he really is. I mean, like, I honestly, I mean, I, you know, he sends me emails asking how I'm doing. You know, it's just like, he's really <laughs> nice. And uh, it amazes me, but, you know, because he's got lots of people like me around. But anyway, he, um, his interview, he, he did a great interview, which basically gave me a completely chronolo chronological account of every session he ever did for ECM. So I was doing an interview with him for a new, a new one. So I thought I'll take that and we'll do two interviews back to back. One, which is now and one, which is, you know, the ECM years. So other than that though, I mean, I've got interviews with Norma Winston, John Taylor, Kenny Wheeler, Errol Anderson, Abraham Faber, um, Peter Erskine, um, uh, uh, not Paul Motion, that never happened. Uh, but you know, I've got, I've got about 15 or 13, 14 uh, review, interviews to do. Um, so it's great, uh, you know, so that, that will be hopefully a second, a second thing to do. Um, and, you know, in my life, I never thought I'd be uh, publishing a book, let alone two possible. Mm -hmm. um, I never thought I'd have articles at all about jazz that have been read like 150,000 times. I mean, that's just boggles the mind. Um, yeah. You know. And and you know I think there's there's a little bit of a, at least for me a little bit of a lesson in what you're saying is that as long as you keep going you're gonna get you know full circle somehow you're gonna get to that point where like these individual articles which when you started like you they they, they were never meant to be part of a larger whole right and yep. then and then suddenly like like everything comes together and it's, it's like, like gravity pulling everything together somehow. And, and then, and then even after that, just having the, having the vision or the idea to actually complete that project that was there at the beginning of your career as a writer. Yep. Uh, I think that's, that's just, just wonderful. It's yeah, it, it is kind of funny. Um, you know, cause I told Tina uh, Pelican, mm -hmm. she's retired last year from, from uh, ECM. Uh, but I, it was right around that time that I was, I got the go ahead in the book from Declan and, um, I, I told her and she was really thrilled because, you know, I mean, this is how we met. It was like talking about this book two, you know, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is that, you know, when I look at 
the writing I've done for All About Chad, you know, 2,843 articles, that's a lot of my life has been given to writing for this site. And the thing that's kind of interesting is that, you know, I, if the ECM book did well, you know, I mean, we have talked very generally about even a possible third, because I can see when I look at my writing, a number of themed books that could be culled from all the stuff I've done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, that, that's been both a wonderful surprise and, 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 and a great thing just to discover that is that, you know, there are threads, um, even though I never really intend them to be there, there are common threads that run through all this stuff. Yes. You know, are you uh, uh, an avid reader yourself? I mean, do you do you read books usually? Yes, I do indeed. Um, yeah. uh, generally, when I'm—I uh, mean, I'm reading Anthony's book right now because I don't want to write it up. But generally, when I'm doing a lot of writing, I need to read something that's like just like less brain. So um, <laughs> Stephen so, King. So, no, well, that, yes, but but actually, uh, yeah, I'm 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 doing. I don't know how I'm going to do this, but there's an American writer named F. Paul Wilson, and he's written this sort of thing he calls the Secret History of the World. That started with a six book series called the Adversary Cycle, and then this was back in the '80s and early '90s, and has expanded from there to be like his life's work. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a series of books uh, with a, a, a character named Repairman Jack because. He fixes things. Um, anyway, but but anyway, um, what he fixes isn't what you think. But they, it's the thing that I like is that I was a big Lovecraft fan when I was a kid, and it, uh, this F. Paul Wilson Secret History of the World is very Lovecraftian in its concept. There is um, not good and evil. There isn't God and the devil. There are simply um, there is a power of something in, 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 in the cosmos that is um, looking to um, absorb and, and turn into horrific places. Um, and then there is a counter one, which isn't exactly good. It just doesn't want the other thing to, 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 to win. So um, it, it's kind of heady, but it's, but it's really fun stuff. So what I've done is like, I mean, there were times when I would read the entire series, but it's become so big now that I think I, I couldn't reread the entire series now. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, I, I don't know if I'd live long enough, but so, <laughs> so I'm, I'm taking a certain segment, which, which is sort of the sort of last part of it. Um, and, and uh, I'm, I'm going through that right now. And, and, you know, when I'm done, my friend Carlo in Cleveland has written a couple of books. One about it's interesting. He writes about music, but he also writes about many other things. And he's published two books in the last couple of years. One is about a lawyer there who's got quite a history, um, and another one is about an architect. And so I've got his books there, and those are on my list as well. But I got to do those when I'm not doing writing my own book. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think I think reading is. Um, I have a cousin and her son when he was a young guy really loved coming over to our place because we had all this music and you know books and movies and all this kind of stuff i'm also a film freak and um 
you know, he, he wanted to be a writer, but he hated reading. And I just, I kept saying, you can't, you can't be a writer if you don't know, like you have to, you have to read to understand how to write. I mean, you know, it's, it's the osmosis of like, you know, how sentences work and stuff. And then you can tell people who don't read write, you know, cause I mean, they can't make a sentence to save their life. Um, so I think reading is important. Um, uh, you know, um, and even still as a writer, I think it's important to keep reading, whether it's sort of fluffy stuff like F. Paul Wilson or more heady, uh, intellectual stuff. Um, I think just the idea of like, you know, constantly reading words is a, is a good thing, especially for a writer. It's, uh, what you just said is so fascinating because I know quite a few musicians who don't listen to music. I hear that sometimes and I don't understand it. I yeah. Mean, I, I think, well, I know that they say, they say, I don't want to listen to other stuff because it will, it will color my art. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I can see that, but at the same time, we are, we are fundamentally like the sum total of our experiences. Mm. And, you know, there are some musicians who created wonderful things in a vacuum, but there are mm. not that many of them. I don't yeah. think. What do you, th I mean, what do you think? I don't think that there aren't that many who have no, come there, up. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even know who, who that would be. I think there's always that, you know, the, <clears throat> the fascination actually comes from hearing something that fascinates you. I don't think it's, I don't think you have the imagination without getting some input, really. Yeah. And then, then based on based on something that kind of like excites you, then then you can create something new that is excites you. Yeah. But without that, I think, uh, yeah, it's not it's not possible. But then with music, I think it's a little bit, and this may apply to writing. I think what what um, the, our senses do that are not our feelings, right? Those are the, the, those are the, that's the input. That's kind of like where things come in. And then it's the emotional uh, world that is being created by actually listening to whatever your favorite band was when you were 10 years old. I don't remember the name, but the feeling that is, that is what, what kind of like propels you forward. That's what made you play guitar. That's what, you know, and everything. And, and it's that core. And what I think about like these friends of mine, musicians who don't really listen much to music, they make music all day anyway, and they play. And, and so it's more about, it's not so much like uh, looking back in a way, listening to music, recorded music is a little bit like being in a retrospective mode where if you were in a position to actually be able to play every day, you don't need really need to listen to music. Uh, I mean, I, it's different. It's different for me. It's different for me. Yeah, I have to say. I, I still, I still, I still have to, I still have to listen to other stuff because I mean, you know, I, you know, I, I, I am not on the same level as as guys like you as a musician. Like I mean, you know, I, I do not kid myself that as a player, I was a good player but you know but i mean i don't have the same uh kind of creative spark i don't think that 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 you know a guy like you has but at the same time you know um i do see 
when I listen to the stuff I've done, I do see that there is a voice there mm-hmm. and I can definitely say that it's a sum total of many different things that all get filtered, you know, through my, whatever my view and perspective is into something that is different. And that's, you know, I mean, when I joined that band Larkspur, the the guy who wrote a lot of the original material at the time, um, sadly passed, um, he was one of these guys who, who didn't want to listen to, other people's music, you know, mm-hmm. except mm-hmm. when we were learning other people's stuff. But anyway, so it seemed kind of odd. But anyway, and I, I just, I just don't, I don't get it. Even if you play all the time, you know, I just don't. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not saying it's, it's invalid. I'm not saying it's not a legitimate um, uh, frame of mind. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying I do not get it. I, I. Mm-hmm. Because I think my world would be infinitely less rich, yeah. Without it, yeah. yeah. I mean, even if I'm not using it as a source for my own work, you know, if I'm playing, I mean, you know, listen. I mean, I I was listening to mostly jazz when I was playing in um, that rootsy band in the '90s. So I mean, what I was listening to and what I was playing were two very different things. Mm-hmm. but I think that was important actually that I was listening to something that was completely different from what I was playing um, because it was just it was like a I don't know it, it it was like a breather from where I was and put me somewhere else so I, I don't know it, I'm not sure if that makes much sense but that's kind of how it seems to me so I, I, I just I, I, I wouldn't object if somebody said something like that to me anymore but I wouldn't be able to live my life that way. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Probably. You know, I, I think um, there are actually people, and you're one of them, I'm one of them, who are like globally, let's say, you're universally interested in music or in love with music. Yeah. And, and, um, not and a style even. Not a style. You're just no. It's not a style. Music. No, just with music. Just love music. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And 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 that's. I think that's that's really um, um, just like the perfect foundation to even like to to always be in the in the position where you can enjoy music also, right? Because you're not dependent on like finding that tune that sparks joy, right? So yeah. it's <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, but you know, but it's people also like you know. I mean, you have to listen to music differently when you're writing, you know. And it's like, okay, you know, when I was doing the 1969 box, you know, mm-hmm. and doing the session reels. I mean, yeah, I would go and listen to like one take of Epitaph, and then I'd go to another take of Epitaph and listen to a certain segment to see what Ian McDonald was doing, you know. Yeah. So. Yes. Was I was I listening to music very specifically with writing in mind? To some extent, yes, but largely no. I do not. I mean, I, when I'm listening to music, I'm just listening. And you know, when it comes time to writing, I mean, the other thing is when I write, like I very rarely have any idea what I'm going to say. I, I mean, truly, just. Um, I think of it very much like playing like improvisation, you know, I mean, 
I might have a first sentence, maybe, mm -hmm. um, you know, but I mean, there was a time when I was first writing a lot and I had a dog and I, you know, the day that I was going to write what I was going to write about, I would take my dog, we'd go for a walk and I'd have be listening to the music and headphones. And by the time I got home, I knew the first sentence and that was all I needed. But even now I don't do that. I just start writing and I write until I'm done. So, I mean, um, the good thing about all about jazz is it hasn't stifled me in terms of being able to write at length. And um, sometimes I write too long, I'm sure people think, and that's fair enough. But for me, I honestly, I write till I'm done. And when I'm done, then I go back and I tweak it and I trim it where it looks flabby. I try and make it lean and all that kind of stuff. And it still might be too long for some people. Um, but for me, it's the right length. You know, I mean, when you solo, you don't, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's however long it needs to be. It's, 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 it's as long as it needs to be. And it's as short as it needs to be, yeah. Yeah. you know? Yeah. So, that's so you're, 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 you're all about the process then like that's, that's kind of like how I experience that attitude, let's say. Yeah. And, and, and where, where there's, uh, no such not necessarily such a thing where you need to fit in a in a predefined form that somebody else puts in front of you, right? So where where you you create the form, and and that's that's really um, that's really what what for me um, around twenty years ago maybe um, yeah twenty years ago that was kind of like my realization as a musician that I had the skill to not only improvise but as I was improvising I was creating the form. Absolutely. That's exactly right. I mean, that's, that's, you know, I, I know that there are people who, who like to just freely improvise. I mean, you know, I, Enrico Rava, a great Italian trumpeter I met in two, in, in, in Mannheim in 20, 2009, and he was doing a public interview and he said a great thing. He said, you know, the free jazz movement of the sixties really wasn't free because there were all these rules, no melody, no changes, no rhythm, no, you know, no this, no that. So, I mean, you know, he said, now I'm free because I can play whatever I want. If I want to be completely abstract, I can be that. If I want to blow a really melancholy melody, I can do that. That's mm -hmm. freedom. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that that applies. Uh, that's a really, that was a, that's a big statement because, um, so many people need, feel the need to put a rule or a structure on something when the truth is, once you get to a certain point, what you do leads to a structure or a form. I mean, yeah. it, it's, you, it, it's, an, it's a, an intrinsic, uh, intuitive thing that when you're improvising, which is drawing music from the ether, mm -hmm you are somehow also at the same time shaping, you know, it's like sculpting or something. Yes. And, you know, I find that that is truly the, uh, the beauty of jazz or the blessing of modern jazz or contemporary jazz, let's say yeah. that, that this has been accepted as something that you can call jazz. Like, yeah. you know, you don't, you know, you don't have to have a certain, um, well, I don't even want to want to say it. It doesn't have to swing. It doesn't have to. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, whereas in contemporary classical music, for example, it's just still a huge issue. Like I'm, I, I'm on a group uh, for contemporary classical music because I love contemporary classical music. But there are so many uh, people there. Like when you know somebody posts a video of a really amazing composition that just just doesn't have the idiom of what somebody else you know considers to be contemporary classical. Yeah. They say this is not contemporary classical music, and and I and that's this is what I kind of like think is really 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 the great thing about the, and there's only the word jazz for it, unfortunately, yeah. right? In a way, yeah, I mean, and even it's not a, and even it's not good enough. It's not a, not a good enough word. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, but but, but, it, but it, least, is, least, it is the right one for now. Yes, and at least at least what counts to me is that that freedom exists, right? Yeah. And no matter how we call it, but it exists, and. Uh, like, you know, but but a lot of people don't realize, like the people who define, who who people who pigeonhole music the most, are not the musicians. Yeah. Most of the time, not even the writers. And I say this with no disrespect, but it's the fans, because yeah. they have, often some of them anyway, have a predefined idea of what it should be, and if it doesn't fit that, then it isn't what it is. And I see that. Uh, there was a festival I used to cover in Victoriaville in Quebec called the Festival International Music Actuel, uh, theme of. And what is Music Actuel? It's what the artistic director, uh, Michel Levasseur, felt it was going to be that year, you know? Mm -hmm. And they had, every, I mean, it was all pre left to center stuff, um, you know. Uh, John Zorn was a regular, Anthony Braxton, you know. But, you know, I remember one time Fred Frith was there with Casa Brava, this great band. He did this, it had been his first rock band in a while, and it was with um, uh, Carla Kilstead on violin, who I just adore her playing. Yeah. And it was a great band, and, the, and, and it was their first show. And I walked out of the show, and all the Right, and this time I was journalist. The writers who were regulars there, I was not really a regular, but they were these guys been going for 20 years. They walked, and the first thing that their comment was, was it was, and I, I have trouble saying the words again, they said it was too melodic. And I, <laughs> and I just, I, I, I realized at that moment that this festival may not be for me because, you know, I mean, like, those are two words that can't exist in a sentence. You know, too melodic. What's, you know, I, I still, it still makes me feel this. I still think my head just sort of explodes when I hear it. But, mm. you know, for them, if it wasn't weird, angular, jagged, aggressive, whatever, then it wasn't what they were looking for. And listen, if that's what they're looking for, that's fine. You know, mm. but, but, you know, like, then they're going to say that, you know, like Pat Metheny is a drag because he, he's just really boring old melodic shit, you know? And it's like, come on, you know, guys. Yeah, it's over. just, it's horrible. And you know, the, the word too, like T-O-O -O in, yeah. in English, it's, it's one of the worst words in, at least for, in music, if you get a review and like it's too fast, too blah, 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 too blah. Oh, I really, really, it, I think it, you know, Writers shouldn't be shouldn't be allowed to even use that word in their reviews. <laughs> who is who defines how fast it should be? But the musicians, <laughs> you know, like yeah. you may not like it because it's fast, but that's not doesn't mean mm. it's too fast. That just means you don't like it. Mm. I I mean, this is where you know my my 
quip to some writers when I was editing was, you know, we're not the arbiter of what's good or bad. We're just the arbiters of what we like. And, mm-hmm. you know, and the truth of the matter is, uh, as I said earlier, is like, I don't think many people really give a hoot that much, whether I like something or not anyway, because I'm mm-hmm. just another, you know, set of years. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that what people, I like to hope, I know that there are some people who like to see writers who shred musicians, you know, who, who, who you know, have some, some bon mots to use that, 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 that are clever and everything. But, you know, the good writers, at least the guys I think are good writers, you know, their purpose is to create in however many words they're allowed the context of the music so that people can understand what it is as best as possible when you're using words to describe something that is not describable and under, just know whether it's something that they should check out. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, they should, they, they, it's, 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 a, it's about the people who make it. It may be about how they made it. If that information is available, it, it's, you know, it's about the context of the music um, and, 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 and just, and try to describe a bit of what it kind of is like so that we know if you're interested, but you know, when people start applying judgments like that, that's an instant red flag for me. That's for sure. I think you're right. The word TOO should be cut out as should be the words should the word should is a word. I think that, you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, let's, let's stop there. You know, like the worst that I've been called in a review was a one trick pony. You. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to know what the trick is. Um, no, yeah. no, I'm not. No. That's, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, but, but, and, and my response to that is, you know, and I hope you feel this way when people, I hope you are not adversely affected when you get a reviewer who writes something like that. Because some people really feel it. Like some musicians really, I know some, you know, and some that we both know, um, really get affected by that. Mm-hmm. And I, wish that they weren't because it's just one guy's opinion Mm -hmm. and the fact that he has a forum to put it out there is just happenstance you know it's it's uh, you know i think it's i think it's uh i i do take people seriously and that may be uh, a problem sometimes so i i do actually take that input and i try to see what's their perspective like what do they mean um is there is there anything that i may want to improve or you know or change or whatever and there's a little bit there's a little bit of of, um, being hurt maybe occasionally but but then in the end like maybe you know sleep on it at night or maybe two sometimes and then then it's over and like i'm going to continue doing what i do and and there's not you know and but there's i mean there is there is definitely you know there's room for constructive criticism in, in, in music writing. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I remember when I covered uh, that, the Crimson Jazz Trio, Ian Wallace, and he put a, he put a yeah. jazz trio together, right? And mm-hmm. the, the, the first album they, they sent to me, and I, I, it was a nice record, but I just, my, the, my biggest thing, walk away from it was, you know, nice arrangements, well played, I wish they took more risk. 
mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I got, a, I got an email back from Ian's wife and, and she actually thanked me for that because she said, you know, that's, you know, a reasonable, um, and constructive thing to say, you know, I liked, mm-hmm. I, I really liked the record, but it would just be great to hear that people take a little more risk in the music, you know, cause I'm sure they can, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, that, that there's, you know, like I hope that I think that musicians can learn from the writers to some extent, but you know, when they are being, and, and thankfully it's not many of them, but when they're being willfully, um sort of antagonistic uh to the musician mm-hmm. what were they thinking you know well you certainly don't know because you didn't talk to them about it did you you know i mean like it just you know i mean like the, the, these kinds of things i i don't think there's a place for that in 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 music writing you know i mean you can be you can criticize without it being a you can criticize with it being as a constructive thing you know um, and that's mm-hmm. a reasonable thing and you know, whether the musicians agree or take it to heart or anything like that, well, that's, that's to be, <laughs> to be determined, you know, but it doesn't matter. But, it, but it's, but, you know, I mean, it was, so when I, when I write in very rare instances, something that I have to criticize, I'm very cautious about the words I use because I know that whether it succeeds or not on my, by my definition, these people put a lot of time, effort, heart, soul into making this music and to getting to the point where they can make this music in their lives. And for me to just like summarily dismiss it with some, you know, quick kind of, you know, like I say, bon mot, you know, uh, mm-hmm. good words. Um, I have no right to do that um, to them. You know, um, you know, I will name a guy who gets written about that drives me crazy in Crimson. It's Jacko when they talk about his vocals. Some people, you know, like he sounds like Greg Lake. He sounds like John Wetton. He sounds like Greg Lake and John Wetton. He sounds, you know, I mean, and it's like, no, he doesn't. He sounds like Jacko. And, you know, mm-hmm. he is capable of saying those things, um, which is a good thing. But, but, you know, I mean, his voice doesn't sound anything like either of those guys, you know, but, but people do that, you know, I mean, they did it with Adrian Ballou at the beginning of Discipline, you know, I mean, he sounds like David Byrne. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's this, this is an example of, and like, yeah, you know, like we're, we're maybe coming full circle here with what we just started the conversation yeah. with, but this is, this is where, where you were, and this is what Fripp, Robert Fripp says, like the reviewer is reviewing himself or herself, right? Yeah. <laughs> Occasionally. And, yeah. uh, and it just means that some people just, maybe they just don't have the ear or they don't, don't understand that uh, somebody could, can use the same techniques and still have their own voice, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And also that, that, you know, I mean, you know, listen, if you don't like, there was a, there was a magazine in Canada years ago, McLean's that used to have a guy I loved as a film reviewer and he left and I was so heartbroken because, you know, the movies that we both saw and loved, you know, I clearly connected with what he wrote. And so when he wrote about something I didn't know, I was interested in checking it out because mm-hmm. I trusted him. Mm-hmm. And, but then I started getting people, you know, listen, if you don't like horror movies, then you shouldn't be reviewing them because you're going in with an, an inherent bias 
And if you cannot go in with an, an ear open enough, and I'm using film to distance myself from music, but it's the same thing, obviously, but I'm just trying to do it as a separate thing. If you, if you cannot um, have an open enough mind to accept what you're looking at, um, if you immediately dismiss it because of some tropes that you seem to think are common, then you really shouldn't write about it because, you know, you're walking in with a, an inherent bias and that just isn't, you know, isn't, isn't right. When you, when you play, you know, I mean, you know, and when you improvise, you know, I mean, you go in and the idea is to be clear of mind and let, let mm -hmm. what happens happen, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that, uh, it, uh, I'm rambling on a bit about this, but it just, it's, it's the one thing that bothers me. I mean, there's a lot of writers out there who I aspire to be, uh, as good as, and who, who I really love. And there are a few out there who just make me wish they'd stop because like, you know, other than being clever, they don't write anything of real value. And all they do is hurt the musicians who are spending their lives trying to do this music, but to them, and to probably many other people matters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, it may be um, like the big problem of our time is that people need to make a living, right? And you maybe you start writing about the things that you actually know very well and that you like and that you're, you're, you say like you, you have a goodwill towards the people that make that art, right? And you start there. But then somebody asks you, hey, could you also write about country music, right? And you hate it, but you start writing about it because somebody pays you a few bucks. Uh, and and I'm pretty sure that something like this is happening a lot, or at least used yeah. to happen a lot. And uh, that's a real problem. It is, because the thing is, is like, you know, yeah, you're right. That's probably happens, but, and, and, you know, but, but I still think it's, um, if you're asked to write about something and you are being paid for it, well, that's great. But if you're, but you know, the, the people who are asking you to write about it want a good article and an article that is intrinsically biased is I find can't be good because, you know, I mean, if the, if the answer is there's nothing you can do to make me like what you're doing, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. then I don't think you should be writing about it, about me, you know, mm -hmm. and, and even if you're being, and if you're being paid, okay, that's fine. But, you know, maybe you should learn a little bit about, if you're asked to write about country music, maybe you should learn a little bit about country music. Maybe you should find out, you know, what the Bakersfield sound is and, you know, what the Nashville sound is and why, you know, things were like they were and stuff. Maybe you should learn a little bit about it. And then you're in a position that you can write about it and get paid for it, you know, at the same mm -hmm. time. Because I know guys, listen, like my friend I told you in Cleveland, I mean, he writes he's a lifer. He writes about whatever people approach him to write about. He's doing something right now that is like completely foreign to him. It's not arts, but you know, foreign to him. And you know, he's doing the work and you know, I know that what he writes will be good. Um, 
it's, it's, um, I think there's also like, I mean, what you say is true, but I also think there is a certain laziness now with the web and the, um, ability to just start a blog and say, I'm a music writer. Um, it's also caused a laziness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like people can't believe that I take the time to put in the detailed track and personal listings for a 35 CD box, but mm-hmm. I do it because I feel that the readers are going to want to know what's in the box. Mm-hmm. And, um, when I write the review that I can, you know, they can re- reference that and understand who's playing where and stuff. I think these are important things. And, you know, um, I would get some, I would get writers. I keep saying this to the most managing editor. And it sounds like I'm complaining about all the writers and I'm not because most of the writers were great. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was the occasional guy and it was like, you know, I don't have time for this. You know, like I'm asking the guy to put in like, you know, an HTML code between to, to italicize an album title. Mm-hmm. And it's like, mm-hmm. I don't have time for this. It's like, mm-hmm. if you're, if you're not, don't want to write and make it as good as it can be. And, you know, there are some guidelines that you have to follow and you write mm-hmm. for a site or for a magazine. Mm-hmm. If you're not prepared to do that, well, then you shouldn't be doing it. I mean, you know, yeah. it's part and parcel. You yeah. know, so. I don't know, but I don't want to, I don't want to sound too negative because, you know, like there are just so many great writers out there. Um, yeah. 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 Like, you know, I, I keep saying that um, maybe even in the context of this, this podcast that uh, I think that um, sharing observations is not, is not something negative. No, so it's absolutely okay. Yeah. <laughs> what we just talked about. <laughs> no, hey, just, just so you know, I think we, we went over two hours already. So this I think is, we're good. <laughs> we're yeah. good. And this was wonderful. And it gives me a whole different appreciation for what you're doing. Oh, thank and, you. And, and also for, well, even just like your opinion about me. Um, and that, you know, like I'm just thinking that would, would be something really interesting at some point um, uh, and privately to talk about. Uh, like you, you would make a great coach in in music also like it would be great just to talk to you about to get feedback right like um, um, this may be maybe a career you can consider like <laughs> a, a third a third act the third career for the third act <laughs> I, but honestly i i'd love i mean i you know anytime man i would i would um i mean you know uh, to, to me uh, i don't know if I'll, how, i don't know how much i can offer guys like you but uh you know but i would certainly love to just you know, to be, you know, to be a little bit a part of the process in a way, mm-hmm. um, it would be, it would be a privilege for me, um, mm-hmm. to, 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 to do. So I, I certainly love to explore that with you further. Let's, let's see what I can do there. <laughs> well, we, the thing that's great is, you know, we are, we are far apart most of the time, but you know, with zoom, we're just this mm-hmm. close. Exactly. So, exactly. Cool. Uh, thank you so much for letting me wax on for so long. I, usually people aren't interested. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, I, I can babble. So I, I appreciate no, it. No, John, John, it's, it's absolutely uh, fantastic. And, you know, like th- this, doing this, like for me, right, from my perspective, it's something that I don't know what I'm doing in the sense that there's no aim. There's no, there's no, end to this process it's it is process and i learn a lot about myself and 
I think it's absolutely in this day and age, it's, it's, it's important that we kind of like indulge in, in, uh, uh, you know, the human experience or whatever you want to call it. And, yeah. and so thank you. And, um, let's babble some more, uh, <laughs> yep. I don't know soon. Right. Anytime, anytime. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm rarely not here. So I'm always around. Okay. okay, okay John. Yeah. Take care. Take care. Bye for bye, now. bye. 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 B